and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm pleased to welcome Chuck Thompson back to the program today. Chuck has appeared on Book Talk for his three previous titles, Smile When You Are Lying, The Confessions of a Rogue Travel Writer, To Hell Holes and Back, Bribes, Lies, and the Art of Extreme Tourism, and Better Off Without Him, A Northern Manifesto for Southern Secession. Today, we have the second part of our two-part interview about his most recent book, The Status Revolution, the improbable story of how the lowbrow became the highbrow, which is published by Simon & Schuster. And we'll also talk about the recent documentary he wrote about soft rock called Sometimes When We Touch, which is streaming on Paramount+. Chuck, thanks so much for coming back again to talk about The Status Revolution. Thank you. Good to be here again. In the last one, you mentioned... Thorstein Veblen and Vance Packard as kind of pioneers in status research in America and their thinking. What ways do you think they got things about contemporary America wrong that they're no longer applicable? Well, in terms of Veblen, I guess I'll point to two things. The The title of his groundbreaking book from 1899 is The Theory of the Leisure Class. And in this, among other things, he really pushed the idea that the ultimate expression of status was not to have to work at all. It was purely to have leisure time, to travel or play badminton or, you know, cultivate an English garden at your country estate or sit around drinking gin and tonics at the country club. That to Veblen was status. That is almost no longer true anymore. Even rich people now work a lot and they work a lot at staying rich and getting richer. Complete leisure time is no longer a symbol of status, whatever it was. This really started changing about the 1950s, 60s, but it's the determination of many social scientists today that being engaged in work, um, being needed, generating commerce is the ultimate, but maybe not the ultimate, but is a very high level of status. And that sitting around doing nothing is not. So in that sense, the world has moved on from Veblen's book. I mean, just the title alone. But in addition, the thing about Veblen that makes him obsolete is that if you read his book, and it's a big slog, he uses a lot of big words and long, 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 long paragraphs that go on for two and three pages. He does almost virtually no research whatsoever to back up his conclusions. He makes a lot of assumptions based on observation and intuition. He cites no studies or statistics or anything else as a new school sociology professor named Rachel Sherman told me when I interviewed her, the early moments of social studies, there was sometimes not a huge difference between social science and telepathy. It's a lot of white talking out of their ass. That's what she told me. And we'll get to that white man part in a minute because status is really now diversifying in what we consider who can have status, who can have privilege, what these kind of words mean. But the idea that Veblen did all of this stuff basically by intuition, what Rachel Sherman called telepathy, is just out the window. You cannot be a serious academic or advance any kind of conclusion on how people, populations, you know, exist in anything, you know, whether it's how they process status or how they process COBOL without (laughs) citing some statistics and some studies and some actual research. So those are two ways in which things have really moved on from Veblen. Packard, His book, The Status Seekers, was the title. And again, he framed status seeking and status in general as this moral weakness, as this pernicious element in Western society. And the research now that's being done really shows us that this isn't true. 
one of his other books, Vance Packard's book, was The Invisible Influencers. I think uh, it was essentially the way that the ad industry, you know, worked to kind of manipulate our minds and you know get us to do things we didn't want to do, subliminal advertising, things like that. You know, what we're finding now is that status and status seeking are not these artificially planted or developed ideas that that are thrust upon an unsuspecting public by slick advertising agencies in New York or Fleet Street or whatever. It's a biological function. We can see status working in our brains. We can see ourselves, you know, chemically reacting to ideas of status. And so in those senses, these standard bearers of what status is, how it's commuted through the community are have become obsolete. So you mentioned with this drive toward more and more work, and you mention it in the book. Of course, in the past few months, you, you couldn't seem to turn on a, a news telecast and hear the phrase quiet quitting, or as the uh, the British shop stewards would call it, working to rule. Mm-hmm. So in this fight of not doing as much work as humanly possible, is there a status that's being sought by doing that? Well, I thought about that a lot too. And when I was in the hearing them so the midst of that I thought well god where how does that fit into you know these points that I'm making my thought on that is that while people might be quiet quitting their salary jobs which are not paying them very much money or giving them very good benefits they're doing so not to just sit around on their butts eating bonbons and you know or watching football games and drinking beer at home they're doing that to free up more time for their own side hustles as the other term of the of the times is they're not necessarily not giving their all at work because they don't want to work or they don't want to make money or they don't want to be seen as influential or as needed in the society. They're doing it in other ways. Basically, I think that's all come down to, we've been hearing for years and years and years and years and years how people's wages are not keeping up with inflation. And we've been hearing for years and years and years and years, and I've experienced this myself in the workplace, uh, as we streamline corporations and we have efficiency experts come in to overhaul companies. What this means basically is, okay, I work at a company in 1980, we were producing 100 widgets with 20 employees. Now uh, in 1990, we're producing 120 widgets with 15 employees. And now in 2023, we're producing 200 widgets with five employees. I think we've gotten to the point where humans just can't do this work any longer for the minimal pay that they're getting. And I think that's what's behind that change in the workplace. And I don't think that's necessarily an indication that people don't want to work anymore or that people don't aren't participating in our capitalist society. I think it's just an indication that they're finding ways to do it for themselves that are more efficient and that provide more rewards to them. I've wondered about this because, of course, mechanization and automation in the workspace will obviate the need for even more human beings, AI, even for white collar people, where they think they're going to get their customers from to buy these services and goods. Well, if you read uh, Mr. Yuval Noah Harari's books, he talks about the uh, development of a useless class. (laughs) And really basically talks about that exact thing that you bring up. What is going to happen to people when not only is there no need for them to work anymore, but as time goes by, they will be unable to perform work anymore. What do you do with all these people? And eventually you have to have a whole new monetary system in place to to deal with all that, right? It won't be a simple 
exchange of currency for goods and services because there won't be any currency to be had or there will be currency to be had but it will be you know generated in a different way it's possible and you know i didn't make this point in the book but i have been thinking about it lately i think that the way our whole society is the relationship it has with currency is changing and i'm not sure where it's going i think that changes in its absolute infancy I don't think cryptocurrency is the solution. I, I'm not a believer in it myself. I would never invest in it. But the fact that so many people and even governments and corporations have are really showing a dissatisfaction with our current system of currency, at least, which might be a little different from money. The place that I used to live to get my smoothies won't take cash anymore. I can't believe it. I can't believe that a legal tendered note in this country is no longer acceptable as money in a number of places. I went to a Moda Center out in Portland, Oregon, where the Portland Trailblazers play. All of the transactions in there at the event I went to, which was a concert, not a Blazers game. So I don't know if it's like this all the time. I saw a show there. Um, they wouldn't take any. They wouldn't take any cash. Wouldn't take it at the merch table. Wouldn't take it for a beer. Wouldn't take it for a bottle of water. It's astounding to me. So I'm, I'm not saying I have the answers to this or I know why all this happening, but I, it does suggest to me that our society is is changing its approach to currency and money. And I think that might be the first step in where you're going with that question, Stephen, 50, 20, 50, 100 years down the road when mechanization has replaced a lot of labor. So in the first chapter, status as virtue signaling, you talk about the term rescue dog when talking about getting a dog from an animal shelter. And so that's kind of an idea here that doesn't have like an economic underpinning to it. I did that chapter for two reasons. And the second reason, the reason that you might, the virtue signaling part was actually the second reason I did it. The main reason I liked that chapter was I wanted to show, and I mentioned this to you when we spoke earlier, but I really wanted to find examples in which populations had gained a lot of status that were not typical, they weren't ones that we tend to think of, and that we're also a little bit removed from American human society, where these ideas of you know, various communities feeling they don't have the respect or status or privilege that they should have, or that others have too much, have become very volatile social issues. So rescue dogs struck me as within the dog community, rescue dogs have really had a massive elevation in their status over the last 30 or 40 years. You think about it, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, these were stray dogs, pound dogs. They were rounded up and euthanized. The city of New York used to drown stray dogs in the East River. They would round them up and put them in these big crates and just sink them in the river, drown them 20, 30, 40 at a time. Cities like Philadelphia used to employ people to round up stray dogs and club them to death, find them or strangle them. I mean, stray dogs had no status within the dog community. Now, rescue dogs, as they've been rebranded, are not only a point of pride for their owners to the point that they uh, like to brag about them and virtue signal with them, they have legal rights now. You know, in, in California and a lot of other states, not just California, but California is where it started. Um, you know, if you own a pet shop in many places and you're gonna sell dogs, a certain percentage has to be rescue dogs. At certain U.S. military bases, if you want to own a dog, it has to be a rescue dog. If you want to live on base and have base housing and have access to base housing and you want to own a dog, 
it has to be a rescue dog. So I wanted to kind of look at the rescue dogs within the dog community, if that makes sense. And, you know, again, although this is a pretty serious sociological study of status, and I did think about it a lot. Anybody that's read my books knows I tend to try to come at things from maybe a little bit of a different angle and have a little fun with the topic and find some spots for humor and a few laughs and a few jokes. And I thought, huh, let's just look at the dog community and look at this subset of dogs, mutts, Heinz 57s, you know, stray dogs, dog catcher, pound dogs, and look at how their status is elevated over the last 50 years and find out why that happened. How did that happen, right? Rescue dogs just didn't suddenly come out of nowhere. Like rescue dogs, just one day we woke up and all of a sudden, oh my God, everyone's got a rescue dog. How did that happen? And it happened because a woman named Kim Sterla out in the Bay Area started the ball rolling to really make it happen with a campaign that mirrored uh, the campaigns that are outlined in luxury strategy. Well, in fact, there's a book called The Luxury Strategy about marketing, about how luxury marketers are taught to market their brands and to get people to think of their items as precious objects, objects worth showing to others, objects worth bragging about, objects that have a, a special aura around them. And that's what Kim Sterla did in marketing rescue dogs. Just like they market $10,000 watches and sports cars, you know, fine jewelry. So that's why I went to the rescue dogs one. And I really like that chapter. Kim Sterla is a, a pretty amazing person. And the whole rescue dog phenomenon, I find fascinating. And it helped raise their status, but there still does exist the status of the multi-thousand dollar Labradoodle or Corgi or Shiba Inu or, or whatever. Absolutely. And that's another point that I really make in this thing about this, that I'm calling the status revolution, is that this is a peaceful revolution. This, th there's another, you, you asked me about ways that old ideas of status are kind of being changed or rendered obsolete. The prevailing view of status that I grew up with was that status was a finite quality. If I had a lot of status, that meant you, Stephen, or you, you know, Jessica, had less. In fact, what we're finding is when, when other people or other, in this case, you know, example, we're using dogs find that those around them are gaining status, that doesn't mean that they're losing their status or their position. It's sort of um, rising tide raises all boats effect. And I do believe that. And I do believe that a, a lot of people kind of misread that uh, about what's happening with this status revolution. And I think they misread it in a perilous way. Um, the illustration I think of is that couple in St. Louis waving their guns around on their lawn at the social justice protesters a couple summers ago. Um, they clearly felt very threatened by another group of people trying to seize some place in society that they felt they'd been denied and they felt they needed to protect their own position. But I think they really misread that situation. It doesn't have to be something that costs you anything in order that other people are elevated. And, and that's proven out by what you just said about the expensive breeder dogs, Labradoodles, Corgis, whatever. Those dogs were just as popular. You know, during COVID, dog ownership spiked in this country. And the demand for rescue dogs spiked, but so did the demand for kennel dogs, as did the price. So it's not a zero-sum proposition anymore. I don't think so. I don't think so. And most of the people that study this don't think so either. Now, you mentioned that you drive a 20-year-old Buick in the book. <laughs> so what status are you seeking with this humble brag? 
<laughs> wow, that's not a humble brag, my 2002 Buick LeSabre. You mentioned it for a reason. Well, I mentioned it because, well, you're right. I'm trying to think how I mentioned it. I think I mentioned it in the, in the context of when I was visiting a luxury car uh, interiors factory in Italy, they were talking to me about all these special leather products that they used to you know, build their car interiors and these very fashionable leather from certain makers in Italy. And I said, well, yeah, that'll, that'll go well with me and my 2002 LeSabre. Hmm. I wouldn't call it a humble brag. I thought I was making a self-deprecating remark, but I will say this. Are you trying to suggest even that I was trying to play this kind of um, working class hero sort of card there and, you know, in saying and letting everybody know that I've got my blue collar, you know, bona fides here. I don't think that I was just trying to make a joke at my own expense, but I, I like the LeSabre. I've always liked American cars because they're the only cars I can find booth seats in. And I like booth bench seats. And they're getting harder and harder to find, by the way. I do a lot of long distance driving, 200, 300, 500,000 mile trips around the West here. And I like to be able to stretch out and bucket seats bug me after a while. And so that's why I got the LeSabre. It's got a nice, it's actually two seats, but they sort of operate as the bench. You know, you can fold up the armrest and it's essentially a bench seat. <laughs> that's why I love and that's why I bought you know what that's why I switched for my F-150 when I was looking for a new truck and I, I bought this Ram because I, I could have a booth seat in it and none of the F-150s I looked they're all bucket seats I don't like so let's talk about coolness as status another way of kind of achieving status without spending money yeah this gets into the idea of fashion and trends which was pretty tricky for me to know how to approach in this book. And so in the end, I dealt with the subject in a very limited way. I mentioned Dr. Stephen Quartz, and he wrote a book called Cool and Our Quest to Attain It. I argue that he he really, the word cool could be just, you could just substitute the word, word status for cool. And that would, you know, cool is a better marketing tool, is a better title for a book, but that's really what he meant. But fashion and trends, you know, there's kind of this, to me, there's this Venn diagram where status and fashion, you know, they overlap for sure. But that gets to me into sort of more micro communities. And within small communities, certain fashions become indicators of your status and your prestige with that. I don't know why that is, Stephen. And I'm probably going to give a very unsatisfying answer to this question because I went down about a two-month blind alley thinking that I was going to do a chapter or more on that very question that you asked me. And in the end, I felt like that's its own book. That's its own animal. It definitely has an impact on status and the prestige that one holds within his or her community. But it felt like it was separate from it at the same time. I mean, why did you ask that question? Is it just because you don't know or do you have thoughts about that? Well, cause I thought it'd be a perfect segue into sometimes when we touch. Ah, well, then I'll try to find us a segue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But the, the idea of cool or, or a fashion that sets one group of people apart from another clearly is, uh, to use your word, a common refrain throughout history. And it certainly leads to a lot of conflict in between communities, and it leads to others being denigrated unfairly. How about that? I'm trying to wind it up. So that the people who are uncool or who do not do not seem to possess whatever 
qualities it is that makes a subset of their community cool, whether that's clothing or a type of music or hairstyle or manner of speech or job or whatever it is, that the, the rest are somehow left behind and are you know, snubbed by the others. It's the cool kids factor of school, right? And that's Janice Ian at 17, right? Then you get that sort of thing. So I guess I'm very aware of that as a concept and as something that we all deal with. And something that has long been considered uncool is coming back around again in the cycle, and you have a new project that addresses it. So what's up with Soft Rock? Soft Rock, and as a lot of younger people today might call it Yacht Rock, is a type of music that is kind of near and dear to me. I grew up in a very small town that had, well, it had two AM radio stations, both of which had an identical format, which could be called easy listening, punctuated with some soft rock. So we'd get some Montavani and Ferrante and Teicher. And if we were lucky, we'd hear a Barry Manilow or a Carpenter song that had a 4-4 beat behind it. But the project you're alluding to is called Sometimes When We Touch, The Rain, Ruin, and Resurrection of Soft Rock. And it's a three-part music documentary that dropped on Paramount Plus on January 3rd. So it's brand new, at least as of January 2023. And it's streaming on Paramount Plus. And it's really great. And, you know, I grew up as a kid hating soft rock. I really hated it, like a lot of kids my age did, who were assaulted with, you know, that music all the time. And I was, you know, really wanted to be into, I was into the punk rock and, you know, alt rock and grunge and all that kind of stuff. As I got older, as a lot of people got older, I started to listen to that music more and really appreciate it more. And thank God, why was I so hard on Richard Carpenter or on Rupert Holmes or on the Captain and Tennille? If you listen to their records, they're really well-crafted recordings. So, you know, as, as like a lot of people, I started listening to these songs again in this music and really appreciating them on their own merits rather than on the stigma of uncoolness that was attached to them in their heyday in the 70s and 80s. And so, yeah, that's what the show is about. As you said, it's it's kind of coming back around in fashion again, this whole idea of yacht rock, which kicked off in the early 2000s. Not a lot of people know with a YouTube web series called Yacht Rock. It's created by these four guys out in California, has really led to a resurgence of this type of music. Yacht Rock channels on Sirius Radio, and there's several, you know, these big Yacht Rock tribute bands that tour the country. I'm actually going to go see one on Saturday night, the Yacht Rock Review, which we have in the show that runs around playing sold out shows everywhere. We did interviews with Tony Tennille and David Pack from Ambrosia, Ray Parker Jr., but then also a lot of other um, you know, musicians that weren't necessarily soft rock musicians. Richard Marks kind of straddles the line. Um, Cheryl Crow's in our documentary, L.A. Reid, Big Boy from Outkast. Daryl McDaniel from Run DMC, kind of talking about how this music influenced their own music and creativity as well. And so it's a really fun documentary. You know, there were some really surprising and great stories and interviews. Rupert Holmes, who wrote the Pina Colada song, um, there's a great segment on his career and uh, what that song, you know, kind of meant to his life. Air Supply which was the biggest band in the world in terms of sales and concert tours when MTV debuted, and yet which never once appeared on MTV because they were deemed uncool. Or at least that's what the band says in the interview we did with them. So it's, it's just a really fun way to kind of look back at this music and also reappreciate a, a type of music that 
was really shunned by the critics. I'll say this as well. To me, the story of soft rockers is different from every other music documentary in a fundamental way, right? When you look at music documentaries, they're fun. I'm a, I'm a music documentary. I love watching them. There's a pretty good format pattern that's set up, right? We have the band getting together, obscure beginnings. They explode on the scene. They sell a ton of records. And then inevitably, they dissolve into, you know, this tragedy of either addiction, you know, drugs, alcohol, band infighting, financial woes. And it really focuses on the downer parts The you know, let's pull back the curtain. You think this band was cool and fun. You don't know the misery that they endured and all this stuff they went through. And to me, the thing that soft rockers endured that no other musicians ever endured was public ridicule. Even at the height of their success, when they were selling millions of records, they had to be ridiculed you know, by the press and in movies and on TV shows and even among fans and radio stations and DJs um, who just never gave them that much respect because they didn't think their music was cool enough. No other group of musicians really has had to deal with that. And I, I found that pretty fascinating. And there's also this kind of populist element to the show that, you know, I also find really interesting, which is how can something that is measurably incredibly popular, right? Number one songs for the whole year, 1980, 81, 76, 77, and yet be so reviled at the same time. What is that? You know, that kind of drove me to want to look into this topic as well. Plus the songs are great. Well, and also, you know, for people of our age, it's a nostalgia, you know, it was what was on the radio growing up. And I myself have a soft spot for the easy listening that you mentioned for Auntie and Teicher and Montavani and Bert Kempfert, people like <laughs> that. And I think, you know, there's some really creative arrangements that are done in their work. Is that Stan Kenton's Christmas record is unbelievably complex in its arrangement, but it's in the past. And do you think you would extend that same charity to adult contemporary or AAA music later on? I would, and Stan Kenton was my dad's all-time favorite among many, but uh -huh. um, I still have a bunch of my dad's old Stan Kenton vinyl. So it's really funny to me that you bring that up because that guy is a musical genius, the way we use that term, that's been utterly forgotten, right? When do you ever hear Stan Kenton? Every Christmas. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have Stan Kenton's Christmas record. I can't believe it my dad did It is unbelievable, that. man. I've got to get this. I'm... I'm jotting down a note right now. As soon as we're, in fact, I should just stop the interview right now. Let me order this <laughs> thing online. I will look for it. Yes, I would. Of course I would. I had a really good music teacher when I was a kid. And when all of us kids were complaining about the music we heard on the radio, we wanted to hear. I remember somebody brought an Eddie Money record to a party. I was in a, a very remote town and everybody just went banana. Eddie Money, who's this? Who's this incredible groundbreaking superstar Eddie Money. That's how <laughs> benighted we were. Not that Eddie Money, I love Eddie Money, by the way. I, I bring him up because I like, but our, our band teacher used to tell us, look, you don't have to like this music, but you do have to appreciate this music. And you have to appreciate that nobody writes a song or records a record with the idea that this is going to be the worst music that was ever recorded. They all like what they're doing. They all think it's pretty good. It's their, it's their shining example of what they're capable of. So you need to sort of approach it on those terms. So to answer your question, yeah, sure, I would. I'm not sure that there's a public appetite for a Montavani documentary, but I'll, I'll, Stephen, maybe you and I can come up with the proposal together. Well, Chuck, 
It's been a, a great time. Thank you for hanging out and being stupid for a while. That's easy for me to do. You can, If you want to hang out and be stupid, you can call me. Let's try not to make it 10 years again. Okay. I'm not saying I'll write anything in 10 years, but you can always call me. <laughs> Chuck Thompson is the author of The Status Revolution, the improbable story of how the lowbrow became the highbrow, published by Simon & Schuster. He's also the writer of the recent documentary, Sometimes When We Touch, which is streaming on Paramount+. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.